Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. WBZ, Bradley J. Rather wild weekend. Some ups and some downs. I hope you you had a, a beautiful weekend. The weather was good. Just great. Spectacularly great, actually. And I, I went somewhere in the Boston area. I've never been before, and it's almost a crime I've never been there, and I'll share that with you coming up. But first, you may have noticed a spate of deaths on Mount Everest. It's been a deadly year. And uh, as, as you may have seen, there are people lined up from time to time to get to the summit. And this is not, not helpful. It's, it's part of the problem. And figured it would be a good time. Actually, John Graham reminded me, hey, you should have Jim Davidson on again. John Graham is the guy that supplies a bunch of guests, including the... Uh, the Boston Wounded Vets Run bike guy, Andy Biggio, et cetera, said, you're right. I, I, I'm uh, sorry. I, I should have thought of that myself, but thank you for thinking of it. So I got on the horn, and we have Jim Davidson with us. And Jim's a, a resilience expert by profession now, but he's he's been up to the summit of Everest. He tried once and was stymied by an avalanche, and then he tried again, and he got it done. He really knows what's up when it comes to this kind of thing, so we're pleased to have him here. Hi, Jim. Hi, Bradley. Great to be back with you. Thanks. You're in the mood to talk? You bet. Happy to talk to you and your listeners. Uh, always a good time. Good. First, I do you have a book for sale? Because you should. Uh, I do. I've got uh, one book I wrote a number of years ago. It was called The Ledge. It was about a climbing adventure that turned into a survival situation. And that's been out for a number of years. Done very well. It's a New York Times bestseller. So we're we got that out there, and I'm working on a second one. Good. And, and uh, maybe we should tell that ledge story a, a little later on in the hour because I remember it now, and it's pretty intense. So Thanks. we're going we're, we're to get to the point where you're going to talk about and give your views on and give some insights on the sort of conga line of death at the summit. But first, can we uh, run through your experiences both with the avalanche and the fail and then your summit? I know that you've told these stories a million times. But still, I'm sure you kind of like telling them. So really, the, to me, the one that's most shocking is the avalanche. Can you talk mm -hmm. about that situation in some detail? Like, Talk about, a little bit about sure. how, what it takes to get up to that point you were at. You weren't even, you know, you were way, way up high, but it was still a base camp, right? And 
You are correct, Bradley. Yeah, it's uh, what some people don't know is they think we go to Everest and you get to the base of the mountain and you climb to the top. Uh, we don't get to that point until we're on the mountain for like six or seven weeks because the air is so thin. We have to trek in for about two weeks just to get to base camp. And then we spend about six weeks going up a little bit and back to the base and up a little bit higher and back to the base. And we do that for, like I say, about six weeks. And we work our way from base camp to camps one, then two, camps three, and then camp four. And finally, we get to make a summit push after about six or seven weeks of all this. And that's in the middle of all that is when the earthquake happened and the avalanche you're talking about. What camp were you at? I was at camp one. Uh, it was still early in the season. It was April 25th, so we're only a third of the way in at that point. And uh, we had just moved from base camp at 17,000 feet up to camp one at about 19,800 feet. We climbed all night to get there, so we arrive about 8 in the morning. We're taking a little nap. And at 11.56 in the morning local time, the mountains began to vibrate, and avalanches ripped out of us from two different directions and poured down onto the valley floor towards our tents. And then the glacier started heaving up and down. It was, it was like being in a life ro- uh, lifeboat on the ocean, getting lifted up by the swells. Yeah, can you can you drill down and, and add some more detail to this? You were you were you in your tent? Were you outside? Give me the second by second uh, account of what your perceptions were. What did you realize when you realized what was going on? What your expectations were for your fate? How narrowly you missed getting uh, wiped out, and why? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking. Um, well, like I said, we climbed uh, all night from about two o'clock in the morning till about eight o'clock in the morning. And you get there pretty tired, of course, because you just come up 2,500 feet or so. And we were laying in our tents, uh, taking a morning nap, basically, to make up for all the sleep we didn't get the night before. And about 11:56, I, I heard a little scuffing noise, kind of a kind of a fabric on fabric noise. And I thought it was just my teammate uh, scuffing his sleeping bag against the tent. But the noise kept going, and so I kind of poked my head out of the sleeping bag. I was awake, and I uh, realized it was actually sort of a low bassy rumble coming from our left. And that was the first avalanche starting coming off a mountain called Nupse that's 25,000 feet tall. And normally we hear an avalanche, and frankly, we don't worry too much about it on Everest because you hear them every day. Um, And they usually start to rumble, and the noise softens and fades away as the avalanche goes in a different direction. But this time the noise started getting louder and louder, and my tentmate Bart kind of woke up and sat up. He said, man, that's close. And just about then, a second avalanche started rumbling at us from the other direction. The opposite side of the valley. This one was coming down off the west shoulder of Everest, about 4,000 vertical feet down towards us. And that's when I realized we're pinched between two avalanches coming from two different sides. And that's when we knew we were in big trouble. And so the the avalanches actually cause a wind. The snow kicks up, starts going parallel, right, because of the wind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, you've probably seen some of the video. So the the avalanches start coming in, and we're, we're scrambling to get out of the tent. I took a few precious seconds and turned on my avalanche beacon. My teammate Bart ran outside. I ran out behind him once my avalanche beacon was running. That way, if I got buried by the avalanches, it's an electronic transceiver, so my teammates can track me down using their transceivers as well. And when we came outside, at first it was calm, but exactly what you said, Bradley, the wind started showing up, and it wasn't a change in the weather. Uh, I'm a geologist. I went to uh, UMass Amherst and got my geology degree, among other places. And uh, I know from that that when the wind starts showing up associated with an avalanche, that means the avalanche is so big that it's literally bulldozing the air out of the way in front of it. 
And so these winds were coming in laterally, and then all this snow and ice started coming in, and that's when I thought we were absolutely dead. Because when you're in that bulldozed wind stream, you know you're in front of the avalanche, you know it's coming at you. We couldn't see anything because it was all cloudy, but now that the avalanche started bringing the winds and the snow, that's when I thought we'd had it. Yeah, folks, I don't know if you've ever been in uh, a subway tunnel when the train comes, but most every day when I'm standing at the North Station Orange Line Tunnel, the train comes, you feel the wind almost before you hear the train because it's pushing wind right through that tunnel, and it's sort of the same thing, only the the train's more more enclosed than the, than the, the avalanche, but it's the same basic thing. So, excellent example. How much? I mean, did you ever see the uh, avalanche, or were you was it always hidden by fog, and you only heard it? Uh, the latter part's correct. It was oh, it was hidden by the fog and the clouds, which is pretty typical on Everest in the spring. So we could only hear the roaring, and then the wind showed up, and then the wind started shifting around, and we got plastered with so much snow uh, coming from both sides from the two different avalanches that it was hard to even breathe. So everybody ducked into their tents, and I dove back into our tent. And my teammate, Bart, was not with me. And I was quite worried. I'm like, where did he go? Uh, and visibility was literally zero at that point because now there's snow blowing sideways from two different directions. And I had my uh, little GoPro camera, and I fired it up. And I caught most of that on camera, and it went on for like three minutes with the wind shifting from the right and the left and the tent leaning and snow landing on the top of the tent. Finally, things calmed down, and I was stunned that we had survived and only been blasted by the powder and, and the wind. We didn't have any big chunks of ice or rock come rolling through camp. So nobody on my team was hurt, and nobody in Camp 1 was was hurt or killed. Was there some sort of, of rock or geographic feature that protected you? You just happened to be behind it? Uh, we were pretty much in the open. We were camped on a glacier. It is a big, flat valley of ice. And this valley is three miles long and about a half a mile wide. And they call it the Valley of Silence because the rock walls are so big around us there's not too much wind down there. Um, so we were camped in the open, but because it was a glacier, there were a lot of cracks, giant, giant crevasses in the ice. And in one case, the avalanche kind of ran out of speed and stopped about 200 yards from our tent. In the other case, and it had more bulk and more volume, but the avalanche uh, debris kind of ran into some of these big cracks in the ice crevasses. And basically, the crevasses kind of swallow the avalanche and take the wind out of its sail, and that helped uh, absorb it into the cracks of the glacier before it got to us. And so as a result, we got pushed at, uh, from the avalanches from both sides, but nothing hit us. So we were pretty fortunate. And part of that, Bradley, is because we just camped where climbers had camped for the previous 60 years because we knew what they knew about where it was safe. And so they just passed that knowledge down from generation to generation. So we were camped in a favorable spot wow. when the uh, avalanches came at us. We're speaking with Jim Davidson, who's uh, spent quite a lot of time on Mount Everest. We're going to talk about what's going on there these days. Before you go, though, you had to, uh, before we break, you had to abandon this attempt because of your equipment, was it? Or why did you have to abandon, abandon in this attempt? Well, when those avalanches and earthquake happened, it was a giant earthquake, and it really wrecked Nepal. So as a result, there was a national disaster going on. And so climbing the mountain didn't seem very important then. So basically, we tried to get everybody off the mountain and then we realized how bad it was, and so we started helping out with the communities uh, where we were in the mountain valleys. And so uh, climbing was off the list, and trying to help out Nepal was the primary thing. So you had a, a, I won't call it a fail, but one was interrupted, and so you you went for it again, and you were successful. Can you spend a little more time talking about what kind of preparation you need to, to make to, to do this? 
Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I think if, before you go to Everest, you need years, better yet, decades of experience. You need a real broad base of experience and a real deep experience. And by that, I mean you need to be out in the winter when the storm comes, when it gets cold, when it rains and then freezes, on and on and on, when it gets dark, when you make the summit, when you have to turn around. You need all those experiences under your belt before you go to the big mountains in general, 20,000 feet, 25,000 feet, and even more so for Everest. So I did that kind of climbing for 35 years before I went to Everest. uh, Well, I went for my second trip in uh, 2017. So I've been climbing for 35 years. And then after you get that base experience, then you get really physically strong. And when I went back for my second trip, I was uh, 54 years old. And I trained harder than I ever had in my whole life. I got the most muscle and the least body fat. And we do all kinds of things. We go ice climbing. We go running. But what we do most importantly is to climb other mountains uh, just to get all that stuff going on with carrying that pack uphill and grinding it out for hours, sometimes 10, 12, 16 hours going uphill and downhill on a mountain. So we do all kinds of stuff for that last year and literally get in the best shape of your life. And that's where I was at when I went back in 2017 to try a second time. Okay, when you went up there, you get to the summit. You get to uh, base camp four, and the next stop is the summit. How right? How far is it from four to the summit? From four to the summit, uh, camp four is at twenty six thousand feet. That's the start of the death zone, scary place where there's literally not enough oxygen to survive for more than a few days. And then you go up uh, just a hair under three thousand vertical feet uh, to get to the top at twenty nine thousand and twenty nine feet. So about three thousand feet vertical game. And on a on a in the best of conditions, without a crowd, how long does that last effort take? Depends upon the person, but kind of in the range of about six, seven, eight, maybe nine hours at the most, uh, assuming that there's just light uh, human traffic on the upper part of the mountain. So really, six so, to eight, maybe nine hours. So do you have to leave pre-dawn so you get up there and can get back before dark? Yes, not only do we leave pre-dawn, uh, we leave in the middle of the night, and these days people are leaving even before the sun goes down. So in my case, in uh, May of 2017, we started getting ready about uh, 6 o'clock at night. We left our tents at 8 o'clock, and we climbed basically from 8 o'clock till about 4 o'clock in the morning. So you literally climb during the whole night so that you summit around sunrise, hopefully, for both for beauty's sake, but more importantly, they have the whole day to descend back down the mountain. You need every scrap of daylight you can to get back down. What do you take with you on that last stretch? Probably a, a minimum of stuff. Correct. Yeah, we don't want to carry the weight. Um, literally, up at that, down at this altitude, a, a fit climber can carry a backpack that's 60 or 80 pounds. When you get up to about 20,000 feet, it's hard to carry more than about 30 pounds, maybe 35 pounds. You get above 26,000 feet, it's really hard to carry about 15 pounds. Like only the strongest people can really carry you know, 30 pounds at uh, above 26,000 feet. So, what so do probably you... my pack probably weighed, I don't know, about 15 pounds or so, and it sure felt heavy. Uh, you've got an oxygen bottle. You've got a quart or two of water, which often freezes up. You've got a couple of cameras, maybe a GPS to talk to send out satellite text messages, maybe a satellite phone. And we really don't have any extra clothes because at that point, you're wearing everything you have and you're wearing everything we make. We have three or four layers on and then a down suit over everything. So there's almost nothing to put on anymore, so we don't take hardly any extra clothes. <laughs> Man, that is intense. Okay, you got up there and probably the sun's coming up. You made it. You did it. 
What do you see? What do you feel? Oh, man, it was, you know, it's a, it's a nervous, nervous thing to climb the mountain because you're worried about so much, your oxygen rate and your scent rate and whether your brain's working correctly and whether your toes are freezing. So it's this constant state of analysis and self-reflection and self-checking and checking with your teammates. And it's just, this is constantly things to worry about and see if you can keep it together for another eight hours to get through the night. And then around four o'clock in the morning, it's starting to get light off the east. A little blue starts to come up over the horizon on eastern Tibet. And we see, uh, we call it the blue hour. The sky starts to turn blue, then a little salmon color, then a little orange. We're down to the last hundred vertical feet. And at this point, I'm thinking, man, we're actually going to make it. After thinking about this for 35 years and training for an entire year, literally in the next half hour, I thought to myself, unless an asteroid comes out of the sky and hits me on the head, I'm actually going to make it. <laughs> and it was really stunning to get to that point. And at that point, I think I actually enjoyed Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Being 100 feet below the summit more than being on the summit. And that may sound a little strange, but I think it's because when I was about 100 feet below, I was thinking about everything it took for me to get there, for things I had to overcome and working with my teammates and conditioning and not giving up after the avalanches and earthquakes two years before. And I think I was happy at that point knowing that I, I don't know, gone the distance and made the journey than actually standing on the summit. In climbing, some people think it's about conquering, but that's usually non-climbers use that word, did you conquer the mountain? We chuckle at that and laugh. Nobody can conquer a mountain. We're there just to conquer our own weaknesses and our own fears. So the mountain's way, way more powerful than us. But it was sure was special, that last 100 feet uh, climbing up to the summit of Everest. So you conquered yourself. Correct. Um, you know, because the mountain's just going to live for millions or hundreds yeah. of millions of years. The question is, can I deal with my own weaknesses and fears and inadequacies and learn to get along with my teammates? That's really the real challenge. And I really think that's why people do crazy things like run marathons and climb mountains and uh, study music for hundreds of if not tens of thousands of hours. Uh, we're not trying to conquer anything. We're just trying to turn ourselves into a better version of ourselves. And maybe marathons speak to you and music speaks to one of your guests. It's mountains that speak to me. So you seek your passion and try and turn yourself into a better version of you. Does the sunrise look different above that much of the atmosphere? Is it appear more crisp? The air does seem, the air is incredibly thin up there. So it's, it's, it's still 21% oxygen by composition, but it's 70% less dense, 70 or 75% less dense. So that we, that we have about one third the amount of oxygen molecules every time you breathe in. So as a result, the air seems clearer and it seems bluer. We're at the 29,000 feet. So that's almost the altitude the jets fly. Um, the jet stream goes uh, over the summit of Mount Everest most of the year, and the winds are 100 miles an hour or more. And it's only for about two weeks in the spring when the jet stream leaves the mountain, that's when we all climb. And that's part of the problem we're going to talk tonight about with overcrowding. But, yeah, the air seems thinner. The sky seems bluer. And you realize you're looking down on mountains, 
that are 25,000 feet, 27, 28,000 feet, and you're looking down on them, and it just blows your mind. You were talking about wind speed, and Mount Washington's only 68, 22, I think, but still, it's it's significant weather-wise. I'm sure you've been up there and appreciated Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I grew up in Concord, Mass., and went up to New Hampshire for some of my earliest climbs way back in 1982 and uh, up to about 1986. Climbed it a bunch of times, including in the winter. And back then, the Appalachian Mountain Club used to say, if you can climb Mount Washington in the winter on a regular basis and do it okay, you can climb anywhere in the world. And I thought to myself, that can't be right. It's only 6,822 feet. I mean, most of the other mountains are much taller. But I'll tell you, Bradley, I've been climbing for 37 years now. Alaska, the Andes, the Himalayas, a bunch of places. And if you said, what's the 10 roughest days you ever had weather-wise in the mountains, Jim? Uh, probably four of them would be from Mount Washington. So, Jim, how many how many people are – I saw this line of people. How many? And was that there when you summited? Gotcha. I, I think I know the photo you've been talking about. It's It's been around the news a lot the last five or ten days. Yeah. Um, I think I think that day there was something like around 300 people making a summit attempt. In that photograph, I don't know. I haven't counted them, but it looks to be, you know, 80, 120, something like that. So the person was sort of in the middle of the line. So there is over 100 people or so in that photo, and there were a couple hundred summiting that day. And as we found out, that's just too many. That's the problem. And how many were in a, in a line when you went up? The day I summited back in May, there was a total of about 160 climbers that summited all day from the south side and the Nepal side. And there was some crowding for sure. I would say the crowding probably slowed me down by at least a half an hour, maybe even an hour. Wow. And there were times when I was like, uh, geez, I wish someone would get out of my way. But I knew it was going to happen. So I'm not a particularly patient person, but I decided I was going to have to reframe it. And I decided that when I got stuck behind somebody or if they were going too slow, rather than get mad about it, it's like being in traffic, right? I mean, you can get mad at the traffic in front of you, but that's not going to help. It's only going to stress you out. So I decided to try and chill out. So I said, all right, I'll take the break to catch my breath. I'll shut off my headlamp. I'll look at the stars. I'm at 28,500 feet. I'll probably never be here again the rest of my life. So I just decided to kind of accept the waiting and just try and soak in the experience. So uh, I was better being patient up there on summit day than I am down here when I'm in the bank line. By the way, do you go down the same way you come up? And does that create further congestion? Do you bump into people going down? Yes. Uh, great question. We go absolutely back the exact way we came up, and there's only one rope that's attached to the mountain. We call it the fixed line because it's kind of temporarily anchored to the mountain. So we're all clipping into that fixed line on the way up, so if you slip, you don't fall. You could fall literally 7,000 feet back down towards base camp, uh, excuse me, back towards camp two, halfway down the mountain. Or if you slipped off the other edge of the ridge, you could go down 10,000 feet, and it's a bet literally. Um, so there's one fixed line to keep us secure, and we're all kind of going up it. And then the front of the line turns around and starts coming down. And you got it exactly, which is now, let's say you're going down, I'm still going up. One of us has to unclip from the line and go around the other guy. Yeah. And it's a, it's a little narrow walkway, anywhere from one foot to three feet wide at the very most. So sometimes, literally, like if you were unclipping from the line, I might grab your harness or your or your down suit and pull you against me. Uh, looks like we're giving each other a big hug as you're kind of weaseling and squeaking around me, then clip back into the anchors. And you might have to do that 100, 200 times if there's 200 people on the route. Okay, now, since there's a delay, why is the delay? Uh, give me the ways. 
that the delay is dangerous. Obviously, the oxygen, but there, there may be other ways that it makes it dangerous. The crowds. Yes, they all. You're right. They start to spiral a little bit, which is number one. If there's people in front of you, you're going slow. And up there, there's no more clothes you can put on. The, the best way to stay warm is keep moving. The best way to make sure you don't kind of seize up, almost like a robot, the way it might seize up if it stops moving, is to keep moving. So you want to keep moving, but you can't. Now you're stopping and going. So now your blood's not flowing well. Your feet start to get cold. Your hands start to get cold. You're standing around for, let's say, a half an hour. You're using oxygen that you're going to need six hours from now to go back down. So you're running out of gas, literally. Um, and all that can mean your blood kind of starts to pool in your body. That probably can be a subtle amplifier to thicken your blood and cause blood clots. And if you're above 50 years old like I am or even older, you do have to worry a lot about heart attacks and strokes up there and blood clots because our blood is so thick because we've grown so much red, red blood cells that it kind of gets stuck in your veins. And so standing still doesn't help that. So everything starts to spiral in a bad direction, one on top of the other. Um, so what else? There's the temperature. I guess you've covered it all. The the oxygen. How much oxygen do you take? And how much reserve is there? When you did it, there are 120 people. It took you X amount of time. How how much time could you have stayed up there with the amount of oxygen you had? Yeah, it, there's two different oxygen systems, uh, depending on which one you're using. Uh, uh, I had uh, two bottles, and other people using smaller bottles might have as many as six, depending on how you look at it. Um, my oxygen rate uh, lasted me just fine. I took uh, uh, seven and a half, eight hours on the way up. I was very fast coming down. I came down in like three, three and a half hours, and I had so much oxygen that we, we had tons left over. I was able to use it all day and still didn't use it up. So I probably had oxygen on me for, let's say, 14 hours, somewhere in that range, maybe 16 hours. Uh, and I only needed it for about 12. So I had plenty of oxygen. Um, other people, though, if they are moving slow because they're inexperienced or if they're moving slow because they're sick, if there's a line in front of them, if something goes wrong, they start getting into 15, 16, 18, even 20 hours, they're going to run out of oxygen. And that's when the hammer comes down literally in a matter of a minute because when you run out of oxygen up there, your body is instantly on oxygen starvation, and that's when we have these major medical incidents up high. It's lights out. How many people in that conga line should not be there at all, would you say, percentage-wise? Yeah, uh, good question. Um, based on my experience in other years, I'd say probably 25% of those people should not be there. They're just, uh, they don't have too little experience. They haven't been up high long enough. They haven't climbed other super high mountains like other 25, 26,000 foot peaks. That's just my opinion. Somebody else might be higher or lower, but I'll go down as 25% shouldn't be there. They're just not qualified to be there. And sometimes if they hire a cheaper guide, their guide is inexperienced. Their guide doesn't really quite know what's going on. And if you combine those two, inexperienced climber, not sufficiently experienced guide, now you have a bad team and they're more likely to get in trouble. Add on the traffic on top of it. And you can see the formula for disaster building here. Are there are there a couple of mistakes, rookie mistakes, that you can identify makes you able to identify a rookie instantly? Yeah, you you can watch them climb as little as thirty feet, and you can tell by their footwork 
if they're an experienced climber or not. Um, if they're an experienced climber, the way they kick their boots and crampons, those metal spikes into the snow, the authority with which they do it, and the way they weight that boot um, tells you whether they're experienced or not. You could probably just watch their hands and watch how their hands slide their ascending clamp up the rope. Frankly, you can almost tell by somebody how the, the way they put their pack on. <laughs> if they're smooth and, and shift the weight around carefully and put on, you go, hey, that guy's put a pack on a thousand times. You see somebody that's awkward and struggling with it, uh, kind of just screams rookie right off the bat. The, the, We've the all there. I was a rookie too, but you, you don't want to be that when you get to Everest, obviously. Yeah, but you you were a rookie, but you had trained. Some of these people haven't trained. Now, besides the weight and the oxygen, do they do anything, these rookies, that makes it dangerous for you? Like maybe the way they pass by you on the way up or down or anything like that? Yeah, they they have they cause they cause a lot of problem. Uh, imagine if we're out and it'd be like this: if we're out on 128 and uh, we're all driving pretty hard and everything, but the traffic's flowing pretty good. People are Boston drivers, a little assertive, but there's somebody out there that doesn't know how to drive very well. They just got their license and they're in the middle lane doing 40. You know what happens then, right? Yeah. That, yeah, that's what happens up there. One person going slow can hold up everybody and that person will demonstrate their lack of skills they're struggling with their sliding clamp they don't know how to put their feet on the rock where it shifts from ice over to rock and we're all just standing in the back throwing our hands in the air going man what are you doing here um and i think we really need a system among the clients and the guides and the nepali government to keep those people out of there it's just like you, sh you shouldn't send a, somebody who just got their driver's, their learner's permit yesterday, send them out on 128 during rush hour. That's that's not a good idea, and they're going to cause problems for everybody around them. What's your plan? Have a certificate that no one gets to go up there unless they've been cleared as as uh, good enough to really be up there? Yeah, well, that, that's a good question. What, what, what I propose or others propose, I think the system should be like this. You can't apply for an Everest permit until you've climbed two or three peaks that are 20,000 feet tall, what we call 6,000-meter peaks in the metric system. You must have climbed one peak that's either 7,000 meters or 8,000 meters tall. That's about 24 to, to 26,000 feet tall. If you haven't done at least several of those peaks, let's say three 6,000-meter peaks and one 8,000-meter peak, you can't even apply. Because you can't tell from, from pieces of paper whether somebody's really a good climber or not. All you can do is force them to get other experience elsewhere. Now, if you implemented that, will people cheat and fill out BS on the paperwork? Yeah, they probably will. You, can always, you can't stop everybody from cheating, but most people will follow the rules. And that would cause people to go to other mountains in Nepal, and it would spread everybody out. They'd get their experience elsewhere. And some of those people would find out their body doesn't work well at altitude. That's a pretty common discovery. Probably 25% uh, of the people who want to go find out their bodies don't work right up there. It's just not possible for them. They would find that out on 20,000 or 25,000 foot mountains before they got to Everest. That would thin the crowd. They take that experience of those three, four, ten peaks with them to Everest. They'll move faster. It'll just make it safer for everybody. What is the, the most insane lack of experience that you encountered? Somebody that hadn't even done blank. Uh, I, I don't know everybody's history. You know, I, I would say it's probably people that um, followed, that had only been climbing maybe three to five years, and they had rapidly gone up. They did one trip up Mount Washington. They did one 14,000-foot mountain in Colorado, where I live now. Then they did a 16,000-foot a, a mountain in Europe, uh, Elbrus, so it's a little higher, I think, than that. Um, one 20,000-foot mountain and went right to, to Everest. 
they, they have no depth or breadth to their experience. They haven't encountered darkness and storms and sickness. And so they don't have the experience, and they also don't have the most important component, which is self-knowledge, knowing how your body should perform when it's going well and seeing the early signs to go, uh-oh, I'm just not moving today as well as I should or as fast as I should. That self-knowledge is what will keep you out of trouble. And you see people up there that have only been at it a couple of years, they don't have those things going for them. Is that final stretch littered with oxygen bottles and other stuff that people just cast off? No. No, that's, that's an old story that the, the media often waves too much. I see it in the newspapers. And you've probably seen photos, and your listeners may have seen photos, too, of trash on the mountain. Those photos are, are disgusting. You say, hey, that's just wrong. You're throwing your trash on the ground. That has been blown way out of proportion. Okay. I'm an environmentalist. I'm an environmentalist myself. I can't stand it when I see trash on the ground. I stop and pick it up like probably a lot of your listeners do. I used to work as an environmental geologist, cleaning up the environment from oil spills and everything. And uh, I've been going to the Himalayas for over 25 years. The mountain's slowly getting cleaner. The oh, valleys are getting cleaner. Good. People used to throw their junk on the ground. Now they're realizing, hey, we should respect the mountain and environment better and pick it up. And also the locals are finding out it's better for tourism if, if people see a pristine yeah. mountain rather than a trash-covered one. So those stories are way exaggerated. Are there still some ugly spots that need to be cleaned up? You bet there are. But they're working on them. There was another big cleanup expedition this year, and they've been doing them off and on since 1975. So there are some messy spots. We're getting better at them. Don't believe it when you hear the mountain's covered in trash or the mountain's covered in human waste. Those okay. things aren't true. Okay. Uh, we. I want to hear about your the story that uh, your book, The Ledge, is about, and we can dedicate the the rest of the time to that, and also the resilience training that you do, and maybe you could give us a hint of how we can apply that, or or get in touch with you to have you teach us. I, I don't know if you teach an online course or how it works, but you can tell us after this on BZ. What are you talking about? Bradley J. I'm stepping out with my Bradley. Got Jay talking on all night. Jay talking. Lock 1030 on the Bradley BZ Radio. All right. WBZ News Radio 1030. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you put the radio on? Sure. I'm coming up the top. He wants to talk. Let's see what he has to say. Let's turn into a radio show. It's a beautiful night. Oh, I love this place at night. Jay talking with Bradley Jay. There's no wrong in him. WBZ News Radio 1030. We continue with Jim Davidson, who's been up Everest a bunch, a bunch. Well, compared to me, anyway, he's he's been up more more than more than most. And in addition to that, I mean, he has had some experiences that he wrote a book about, and the book is called The Ledge, and it's very serious business and. I'd like you to talk about it a little bit. This book is available for you to buy, folks. And Jim's going to give you an idea of what it's about. Thanks, Bradley. Yeah, it's, it is about, it is serious business. Um, I was climbing back in 1992 on Mount Rainier, which is a 14,000-foot mountain outside of Seattle. I was climbing with my good buddy and long-term climbing partner, Mike Price. We summited a difficult route safely, but sadly on the way down, uh, one of these 
snow bridges, which is kind of a hidden snow bridge over a giant crack in the ice, collapsed, and it dropped us inside that glacial crack, inside a crevasse. Mike and I both went in 80 feet, and I'm sad to report that my friend Mike was killed in the fall. And I was trapped down there. I tried to do CPR for my friend, but it didn't work. And he passed away soon, and I was trapped down in the crevasse by myself. And I had to figure a way to climb up this 80-foot wall of vertical and overhanging ice. And, of course, that was one of the most terrible days of my life and the most difficult thing I had to ever do. And it took a long time to be able to share the story, uh, both in my public speaking that I do now and to share it in the book. I mean, it didn't, the book didn't come out until 19 years after the accident. But uh, I knew I wanted to share the story of how Mike uh, slowed down my fall and helped me survive and all the things he had taught me about being a resilient team member and doing your best for the team. So I did it to honor Mike a little bit and to share the story of what happened to us up there. And so that's why I work with my writing partner, Kevin, and we, we wrote The Ledge back in 2011. And this is the germ of the idea of resilience for you. This is, this is where the, what you do with resilience training comes from, right? Correct. Yeah, I, I, I used to be a geologist, like I said, and I did technical training classes for geologists and engineers and lawyers all over the place. So I was comfortable in the front of the room, and I just got kind of this nagging feeling that instead of speaking about science, I should be telling people, what happened to Mike and I up on Rainier and the things I did that helped me survive that situation. And uh, so I started writing those things up and started sharing them in my presentations with corporate groups and universities and associations. And then eventually I met my writing partner, Kevin, and we, we wrote the book together. And I realized it's, it's about resilience. And now I talk about climbing stories and I share what happens during the good days, like summiting Mount Everest and the bad days, like when I lost my friend Mike on Mount Rainier but always kind of digging through the story to find what are the gems in here? What are the lessons that everybody can use in their personal life or in their work life about being more resilient, about being more tenacious? And that's why I'm a public speaker now and an author is because uh, I missed the science work, but I left that behind because I want to share these lessons about being more resilient for all the difficult challenges that we all encounter in day-to-day -day life. How much of what got you out of there was training, reflexive training, and how much of what got you out of there was stuff that you just dug deep and found that you, you didn't have before? Yeah, good question. I hadn't thought about it that way, but um, I'll say this. When I, the, when I first started the climb up that overhanging wall, I had to figure out a bunch of technical things about how to protect myself with the rope because I didn't have a partner to hold my safety rope, about how to use the limited ice screws to go up and down the wall. I had to go up and down the wall to reuse them. So it was sort of like all the technical stuff and the prior experience that was probably the vast majority of it the first oh, two hours. And then for another two hours, that's when the sort of just that raw resilience and tenacity and perseverance started to come through. And the last hour, it was all that deep stuff. And I got to the point even where I was so exhausted and still spitting up blood, and I've been climbing this wall for five hours, and I thought, I may not even survive. And if I'm not going to survive, maybe I should just quit and go to sleep. Nobody will know. But I realized I couldn't do that because my partner, Mike, had given his life to, to save me. And the things my dad had taught me, uh, painting crazy structures all over New England, working for him when I was a teenager. And it really got down to honoring the things I'd been taught. Even if I didn't survive the climb out, I had to try my very best. So the latter part of it, it was all that buried resilience and those things that I'd been taught by others. That's what really got me up the last part of that wall. In the last three minutes or so, can you give some examples of how folks like Normal folks like us can utilize what you know about resilience in our lives. For example, I, I can immediately think of someone undergoing chemotherapy or cancer treatments 
would would probably benefit from your book. What else? Who else? Yeah, I, yeah. It's it, it. What I talk about is it's facing change and challenge and uncertainty. That's what makes us nervous, keeps us up late at night. The change could be you got fired, you have to move to a new city because you're a significant other, or it could be you get a serious illness like you're talking about. When those things happen, we tend to feel kind of bad. We don't like it. We don't want it. That's when you got to take a look at this thing and say, you know, if I can't fix this problem, I can't change it back, if I have to move or my spouse is sick, we're going to embrace this. We're going to throw ourselves at it. We're going to give it everything we've got. Not that we want this change, but we're going to deal with it. So you give it everything you got, you take a look at the situation around you, what climbers call situational awareness, and what you're trying to do is spark yourself into action. And if you can spark yourself into action, that can spark your spouse or your teammates or the rest of your workmates into action. So you want to be the person to try and spark some resilience right off the bat by giving it your best. It doesn't mean you have all the answers, but that's what gets the ball rolling. And if you happen to be a little older, maybe you're the the leader of the team, the leader of the, the office, that's when you've got to look around and see who needs help and try and find people where they're at and amplify their natural, their natural resilience. So it's basically looking for your opportunity to lift yourself and your teammates up, not to give in to the change and challenge and uncertainty that comes at you. How can folks contact you if they want to know more about your resilience training? Yeah, thanks. I've got a webpage, of course, uh, speakingofadventure.com. It's Jim Davidson, speakingofadventure.com. Uh, I post things up there, lessons about resilience, and I've got a blog and all that kind of stuff about how you can be resilient for the small things in life and the big things in life. And I kind of blend that in with some adventure stories. So happy to stay in touch with people online. And speaking of staying in touch, I'm really glad we stay in touch because you are a great, great guest and I'm guessing a great, great, great person. Thank you, James. Thanks for having me on, Bradley. We'll talk to you down the line. Absolutely. It's WBZ. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.